Good morning, everyone. Good to see you today. This summer, we are considering the themes, the events, and the heroes of God's epic story found in the pages of the Bible. Now, we love epic stories. We are drawn to epic stories, I think in part because we all would love to live epic lives. Now, when it comes to living an epic life, we really have two options. Most people try to create an epic life by living a personal story that is large enough to be considered epic. The challenge with that is that even if we become very famous, we're not famous for long, and no matter how much we accomplish, it never seems to be quite epic enough or large enough. And that's because option two is what we were created for. We were created to be a part of an epic story that is larger than any of us, the story that God is writing throughout history, and that he invites us to fold our stories into. Now, epic stories always have an epic beginning, and we're going to start at the beginning today. Epic stories have an opening line that kind of captures our attention. Now, some epic stories begin with introducing the main character, like in the opening line of Moby Dick, where the opening statement is simply, call me Ishmael. We are introduced to the major character at the beginning. Some epic stories introduce the theme of the story that is to follow, like in A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens, where we read, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, and we're drawn into the theme of the story immediately. Now, God's epic story begins with an opening line that does both. This is the opening line in Genesis 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In those 10 words, we are introduced to the main character of the story, God, and the main theme of the story, God's interaction with his creation. Now, in our day, it's become kind of easy, I think, to lose some of the wonder and the amazement of creation. And that, in part, is because for the last 100 years or so, we have been looking at the beginning, at the origin, at the start of everything, primarily through the lens of science. Now, science is great, and we have benefited tremendously from it, but science starts with the pieces of a puzzle and then tries to figure out what the picture might look like based on what the pieces look like and how they're coming together. And so as a result, as we've looked at the beginning, primarily through the lens of science, our attention has been focused on the puzzle pieces, on the data, on the details. And as a result, I think sometimes we, we just stop and forget to kind of step back and just look at the wonder of what is all around us. Now, the Bible takes a different approach to truth than science does. They both arrive at truth, but from a different angle. The Bible's angle on truth is from the perspective of the artist. The one who created the puzzle tells us how the pieces of the puzzle fit together and what the picture exactly is. Now, this is why the picture that science presents keeps changing because the data keeps changing. The pieces keep being added to. For example, 50 years ago, two-thirds of the leading physicists and astronomers were convinced, believed that the universe had no particular beginning point and that the solar system, our solar system, was the result of a near collision of two stars. That's what was in the science textbooks. That's what everyone was convinced. That's what the data pointed to. Now, there's a very different conclusion. Now, scientists agree that our universe had a precise beginning point. Now, when that was and the date of that, there's, there's continues to be shifts on that, but they all agree that there was a particular beginning point. Now, that's very different. The first conclusion 
seemed to be at odds with what the Bible said the beginning was, but now it seems to sync up again with what the Bible says. Why do things change and shift in science? Well, it's not because anyone's trying to trick us. It's just more data has been discovered in the last 50 years, more puzzle pieces. And with more puzzle pieces, the picture looks a little different. So we are constantly learning more and needing to adjust our conclusions. Now, science is great. Don't get me wrong. I'm grateful for the benefits of science. But it keeps changing because it keeps finding more pieces. That's why one year, this set of items are bad for us to eat, and the next year, they're fine for us to eat. And then they're bad again, and then they're fine again. They just keep gathering more data. Now, the Bible has a different angle. It claims to be from God. So it doesn't keep updating whenever new data is discovered. Now, we can learn a lot from the pieces that science puts together. And as I said, we have benefited greatly from it. But science cannot tell us how to live a meaningful life. And so when it comes to how we build our life, we face a choice. We can either live our life based on what the Creator tells us the picture on the box looks like, or we can go with the ever-changing ideas that the puzzle makers of our world are currently presenting as the best guess of what life is about. Now, our approach in this series, and obviously as a church, is to live our life based on what the puzzle maker says the picture looks like. And as we discover more data, sometimes the data will seem to support it, and sometimes the data will not seem to support it. But we realize that not all of the pieces have been gathered. And if we're just looking at it from a piece standpoint, we don't have all the pieces. And so we're going with what the puzzle maker says, with what God says is true. Now, at the beginning of the epic story, the point of creation, two features stand out as you read the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, the first book in the Bible. The two features are beauty, tremendous beauty, and us, humanity. Those are the two dominant features of the opening scene, the, the beginning of the epic story. And each of these two features tell us something about God, the one who created both. So let's begin with the first feature, beauty. Beauty tells us this about God. It tells us that God is good. God is good. That's why things are so beautiful. Six times in the creative effort, we read this in Genesis chapter 1. Here's one example in, in uh, verse 10. And God saw that it was good. He says this six times. In the creative effort, he pauses and says, this is good. Now, the word good here in the Hebrew language is not referring to the functionality of the different parts of creation, but their beauty. God isn't just pausing to say, oh, good, it works. He's pausing to say, this is beautiful. Not only does it work, it's, it's amazing. It speaks to the pleasure that creation brought to God, and by extension, the pleasure it still brings to our hearts. It was important to God that the universe didn't just work, didn't just function, but that in the doing of what it does, it was beautiful. It was majestic. Why? Well, because God himself is good. Not just morally good, but the author of delight good. And so when we say something is good, we not only mean that it works, but we mean that it's pleasing to us. Now, science is focused on trying to understand how our world and the larger universe works. 
That it works is amazing. That it's beautiful is a mystery. Science can't explain why it's beautiful. They can explain why it works, some of it at least. But there's no real answers in science as to why is it so beautiful. Now, for example, science can tell me a lot about what's occurring when I look at a sunset like this one. I took this picture of Bolsa Chica State Beach several years ago. And so when I look at a sunset like this, or you look at a sunset like this, science has discovered a whole lot of pieces that help us understand what's going on when we look at a sunset like this. For example, science can tell us that the Earth is rotating, which brings the sun low on the western horizon every 24 hours. That's why there is a sunset. And the reason it's red is because, it turns out, science has discovered that red light waves are scattered the least by atmospheric gas molecules. And that's because red wavelengths are longer than the other colors in the visible spectrum of light. So as a result, red photons travel further through the atmosphere than any other color. So at sunset, when the sunlight travels its furthest path to get to our eyes through the atmosphere, the blue light has been mostly removed, and all that remains is the red light, because red light waves travel farther than blue light waves because they're a longer wavelength, and they can get through more of the atmosphere. Now, these red photons of light coming from the sun reach my eye, and they strike cone-shaped structures in my eye, where they react, first of all, and this is amazing, they react, first of all, chemically, and then that's turned into electrical impulses that our brain can then read that allows us to perceive this sunset. Now, that's a lot of information about sunsets, right? <laughs> and it's a lot of helpful information, especially if your eyes aren't working and doctors are trying to figure out how to get them to work again. But does any of that scientific information that I just gave you about sunsets help you understand what it felt like to stand there that day and watch that sunset? No. I mean, it was beautiful. And it moved me on the inside. The rotating earth and the sun and the wavelengths of red light and the rods and cones in my eyes and the electrical messages being sent to my brain worked, but the result was not just functionality. I saw a sunset. The result was beauty. I was moved to delight by that sunset. And science, they can't find the puzzle pieces to, to explain that. They can't give me an answer for that. that. That's not within the realm of what science can do. Now, sunsets, it turns out, aren't just the one singular moment of beauty every day that brings joy in the middle of our otherwise ugly and drab world. And red is not the only color that moves us. Our universe is absolutely full of beauty and a vast spectrum of color to behold it. For example, here's a monarch butterfly. I did not take this picture. Now, this is stunning. All by itself, it's stunning. But in a, a backdrop of blues and purple and green, it's breathtaking. And it's not just the color. It's the patterns and the shapes of those wings and the, the flower that are the integral part of what makes this so beautiful. Now, if this was the only type of insect, this scene would lose its beauty over time, and it would be absorbed by the sameness. If this was the only insect out there, eventually we'd be, yeah, monarch butterfly. It's all we see. We're over monarch butterflies. 
But you see, that's not the only moment of beauty. Another essential part of beauty is variety. Sameness eventually gets boring to us. We need variety. And everywhere we look, we don't see just a reasonable amount of variety, but an incomprehensible amount of everything in creation. I mean, there aren't just 10 or 100 or 1,000 types of insects to keep us interested. Right now, scientists are aware and have discovered 950,000 known types of insects in the world. And I say known because every year we discover 10,000 new animal species. Every year. Places that we haven't been able to get to and we haven't seen and rocks that we haven't been able to look under. 10,000 new species of animals every year. The amount of variety is just beyond comprehension. There appear to be more puzzle pieces in this box than we can imagine. Everywhere you look, you find more than you would expect. I mean, just listen to the birds in the morning. I mean, I listened to the birds this morning, and the sounds are, I mean, it's not just a hey or a I mean, it's, they go crazy. It's all kinds of sounds, more sounds than you would think possible. Then there are more fragrances to smell and flavors to taste than you have time to explore. And then four times a year, the entire canvas changes, and we experience winter and spring and summer and fall. Not here so much, which is one of the things I miss about growing up in Canada, when the canvas suddenly went white. You know, and before that, reds and oranges, and then greens and blues and purples and yellows. I mean, it's just stunning. The whole canvas changes. But, you know, the light show of beauty doesn't end when the lights go out on our day and the sun sets. As the sky grows dark, we are introduced to the celestial beauty of stars and moon and planets. The reason that we can look up and see such beauty like this is because, and you may not be aware of this, we have the best seat in the galaxy from which to view the universe. Our planet is situated in what is referred to as a spiral galaxy. We call our galaxy the Milky Way. This is what our galaxy looks like from the outside. This is not an actual picture. This is what scientists imagine it would look like. We've not been able to travel this far and get a camera out there and take this picture and get the data back to us. So this is based on all the pieces that we know, what we think our particular galaxy looks like from the outside. Now, our Milky Way galaxy has four main spiral arms to it and several other minor spiral arms. Our sun is a star located in a minor arm of this galaxy called the Orion Spur. Now, if we were in the middle of the galaxy, we, well, we probably wouldn't exist because the cosmic storms and forces of gravity in the middle of a spiral galaxy have such forces to them that nothing alive could, could be sustained there or ever happened there. Even if we could be alive and we could look up on the sky, it would, it would be like we were in the middle of a sandstorm. We, we couldn't see anything for all of the debris and all the particles that are swirling in the middle of a spiral arm galaxy. Now, you would think then if we were placed on the end of an arm, we would have the best view. The problem with being on the end of an arm of a spiral galaxy is we are vulnerable to all the moving debris of space. 
up there. It turns out that the end of these spiral arms collide with much of the debris and the moving asteroids that are moving through space at all time. It's a very dangerous world out there, dangerous universe. And so being on the outside, we probably would have been picked off as a planet long, long ago. And so God placed us in the middle of a minor, minor arm, far enough away from the middle so that we could survive and we could see, and not on the very end so that we would be destroyed. And then even within our own solar system, the Earth exists in what scientists refer to as the Goldilocks zone, which means it's not too hot, it's not too cold, it's just right. And by just right, I mean if, if, just, if we were just a little bit further out, we'd all be ice. If we were just a little bit further in, it would be one fire, one giant flame. We just exist in the perfect zone where life can occur. And the position of, if you've seen all of our planets, you see the big planets are the ones after us as you move out from the sun. There's Jupiter and there's Saturn. Those are giant planets compared to ours. You know what? They're, they're like bouncers in our solar system. You look in the surface of those things, and they, they have kept out a lot of stuff from hitting us. They serve the purpose of additional protection beyond our position in the galaxy. And so God placed us in the middle of a minor arm that protects us, but allows us to see out on the universe. We've got the best seat. That's why we can look up at night and see our own galaxy, which looks like this from Earth. And we can see beyond our galaxy. We have a window into the universe, and we're seeing more and more and more. And you know, the more that we see, you know what we discover? It's beautiful. It's stunning. Now, the universe, and I want you to understand this, the universe does not have to be as beautiful as it is in order for it to work. So the question is, why is it? Why so much color? Why so much sound? Why so much taste? Why so many stars? Why so many species? Why is it? Well, it's because the one who created it is good. Not just skilled good. That's why it works but gloriously good. That's why it's beautiful. And here's what we read in Psalm 19, verse 1 through 2 about this. The heavens declare. They're talking. What do they say? The glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of His hands. Day after day they pour forth speech, and night after night they display knowledge. You don't have to know a single bit of any language in order to get this. All you have to do is walk out and look up at the night sky. Maybe get far enough away from the city so you can see enough stars. Or get out into the mountains or go to the beach. You just have to look around you, and you will get this message. God is an artist. He didn't make a machine so that we might learn the complexity of how it works. He made a beautiful machine that causes our jaws to drop in awe and wonder. And he did this so that we might know something of him, something of his goodness, just by looking all around us every day and every night. And you need to spend a great deal of time staring at the data, at the puzzle pieces to not be able to see this. A little child can look up in the night sky and get this message. It takes a great deal of education to ignore the one who made this. That's where much of our world is now. 
You see, beauty is often our one remaining link to God. It's the one thing about God that we just can't shake. I mean, we can turn away from God by ignoring Him, pretending that He's not really there. We can defy Him, do what we want to do in opposition to Him, or we can invent lies about Him. But we cannot turn away from His beauty. It it is irresistible. Beauty can melt even the hardest heart. And whenever we see a thing of beauty, we are reminded of home. We are reminded of our Creator, and our hearts are drawn. And that brings us to the next theme of creation, and that is us. You know what's interesting about us? We alone seem to have the capacity to enjoy beauty. Only we pause to look at sunsets and stare into the night sky. You know, I've had a lot of pets growing up. I've yet to have a dog that just I found out in the front yard going, at a sunset. I mean, they're you know, looking at the next piece of poop around somewhere. I mean, I, I love animals. They're great, but they don't do this. We do this. And, you know, we are the only artists on the planet who attempt to do what God did. Now, granted, on a much smaller scale, but we attempt to do what God did by creating original works of music and sculpture and painting and invention. We do this. No other living thing does this. So what about us, the second major feature in creation? What about humanity? Humanity tells us that God is loving. Beauty beauty tells us that God is good. The fact that we exist and who we are, that informs us that God is loving. In Genesis 1, 27, we find how we came to be. This is what it says. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. We are an image. And an image points back to the original object that it's an image of. What that means is that we are secondary beings. We are not primary beings. Let me explain what I mean. The object that you see beside you or behind you whenever a light is shining on you is an image of you. Right now, there's a light shining here, and there's, a, there's an outline of me. It's an image of me. It's, it's my silhouette that's being cast. It's my shadow, an image of me. And I am primary, and my shadow is secondary. In other words, I move, my shadow moves. It follows me, not vice versa. My shadow's not going to take off, and I'm going to have, excuse me, my shadow's leaving. I got I to, I no, I'm primary. It's secondary. Now, both are real. My shadow is real. I'm real. But the shadow is dependent on me. In other words, it would not exist without me. It does not have the power to go off on its own and do its own thing. It is attached. The person that we are an image of is God. Now, both of us are real. But God is primary and we are secondary. What that means is he doesn't need us, but boy, we need him. You know, I don't, I don't need my shadow. My shadow doesn't do anything for me, but boy, my shadow needs me. So when we speak of things like having a self-image, that makes about as much sense as having a self-shadow. Now, we do have an image of ourselves, but we have to attach it to something in order for us to figure out our value. We can't just declare our own value. 
I mean, we can, but it, it doesn't work. You can look in the mirror and say, you're amazing, believe in yourself, and on the inside, it's like, yeah, I don't know. Because you need to point to something to establish your value. You're a shadow. I'm a shadow. You're an image. I'm an image. I, I need to point to something. We are shadows, and shadows always point to something that they're a shadow of. If we don't point to God to establish our value, which is the basis of our value, then we're going to have to point to something else in creation, and we're going to have to raise it to the level of God in order to establish our work and the problem, or worth. And the problem is it's, it's not big enough. To establish our worth, only God is. So being an image or a shadow of something may do, doesn't sound like it's very appealing or very ennobling, but when that something else that you're attached to is God, that you're a shadow of is God, well, that makes us quite spectacular. We share a great deal in common with the other living things on earth, like many of the living things on earth have backbones that give our body structure and allow us mobility and movement. Many living things have hearts that pump blood and eyes that see and lungs that breathe. But when you examine the less physical, more shadowy, image-like attributes, it becomes clear that we're not just a more advanced version of the other living things, but we are something that on the inside is entirely different from any of them. You can't just progress to be something like us. We're different. Our minds are probably the most obvious point of difference. I could point out many, but our minds, I think, are probably the most obvious. We are able, alone in all of living things on this planet, we are able to think abstractly, which means that we can think about objects and principles and ideas that are not physically present. All other living things interact by instinct with their environment. We have that capacity, but we are able to think beyond that, think bigger than that. That's why we can have dreams about our future and goals, and and that's why we have this crazy idea that our life is supposed to add up to something important. No other living thing has anything close to that. Now, we're not just relying on instinct to help us survive today. Our minds can discover the mathematical formulas that are behind much of why the universe works the way that it does. And that allows us to do quite extraordinary things. It allows us to invent things that we've never imagined before, we've ne- that have never existed before, like cars and cell phones and concrete. Like God, we have minds that can create something that hasn't been. All other living things manipulate and work with what is. We do new stuff, like God did. Now, sometimes we get confused about this, and we maybe watch a documentary about a dolphin. And dolphins are amazing. They're intelligent. I love dolphins. And we're amazed as we watch this documentary about how intelligent they are. Now, if you look at a dolphin looking at a person, it's easy to notice the similarities. I mean, look at these two. They got the same smile. But while we can and do make documentaries about dolphins, they will never make a documentary about us. See, from this point on, the dolphin continues to smile. We go on to do algebra. We go on to do science. We go on to invent and create. The dolphins, after a great deal of training, 
and a lot of fish can learn some pretty amazing things. They don't create. They will never invent cell phones. They will never send other dolphins to the moon. They will never, never build cities. They will never pilot underwater vehicles. Now, please understand, I love dolphins. All of God's creation is amazing and it has tremendous worth, but they are not us. We are different. And we, we've lost that sense. It should be common sense, but we've lost that. So why did God make us in his image then? Why make us different? Why not just, you know, put us on the top of the animal kingdom and leave it be? Why create us with a different inside, a soul? Well, it's so that we might have the capacity to know him. Not just the facts about him, but so that we could know him personally, so that we could have a relationship with him. That's why God created us this way, so that we can actually have a relationship with him. Now, not because he was lonely and needed someone to love him, but because he wanted to extend his love. Six times, as I said in the creation story, God paused to say, it is good. And then in chapter 2, we read the shocking words, it is not good. What? After six, it is good, what happened? Did God finally make a mistake? Was something not functioning, not working properly? Was something finally too ugly to allow into creation? No. What was happening is God was pausing for dramatic effect. Having said it is good six times, he wanted us to to have our heads turned when we read the story. What's not good? And he wanted us to lean in and get this point. He didn't want anyone to miss the big message. Here's what we read in Genesis 2, verse 18. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. What's the point? The point is this. I created humanity with the capacity to love, so it's not good for any one of them to be alone. Then he went on to create Eve and establish marriage. But whether we marry or not, the point is bigger than that. The point is clear. It is not good for us to be alone. We were created to love and to be loved, first by God, and then by others. That's because we've been made in the image of the one who is loving. We can't get away from that. And if we don't love God, and we don't love others, and we're not loved by them, we begin to die on the inside. Because love is to our soul what oxygen is to our body. It is the environment that we were created to live in. If we are isolated enough, if we are lonely enough, we, among all living things, will actually take our own life. That's how much we need this. That's how deep this goes. This past Monday, we welcomed our grandson into our family. This is Richard. He's, what, five days, six days, five days old now. Six days old. And thank you. Yeah. (laughs) I agree. You know, um, in that room on the seventh floor of Hogue, and by the way, you know this, Hogue is where you want to (laughs) go if you want to have a view. Um, I looked out on that seventh floor of Hogue over the beauty of the ocean. Then I looked back at all of our family gathered together to welcome this new member of the family. (laughs) My heart swelled and tears welled up. 
And in that moment, I heard without words, but very clearly, oh God, you are good. And you are loving. To still be creating moments like this, of tremendous beauty as I looked out and beauty as I looked at him, and love as we gathered together as a family. I didn't read this out of the pages of the Bible. It's there, but I sensed it as I looked at the beauty around me and the love around me. God did this. This is what he put into motion. Now, I know your heart may have not had a moment like that this last week. Maybe your heart had a a different moment. You know, for every one of these moments, there's an opposite kind of moment. You know, at 2 o'clock this afternoon in this very room, we will be having a memorial service for a young man who died way too young. Maybe your week was more of that. And you may wonder, why, if God is so good and God is so loving, is this world that he created full of so much bad and so much hate? Why is there a mixture of moments like this and then moments on the other side? Well, we're telling you the story of God, the epic story. This is the opening chapter. You're going to have to come back next week for part two of the epic story when we see what happened next. What happened next explains why this world is a mixture of beauty and horror, of love and hate, and why this occurs and what is going on. I hope you can join us next week for that. Before I close this in prayer, I want to invite... um, the two missionary teams that we're going to be sending out this week from Seabreeze to join me here on stage. Our uh, mission at Seabreeze is to uh, reach and help the unchurched become fully committed followers of Christ. And so to do that, we focus a great deal, most of our time and, and resources on reaching our local community here in Orange County. But Jesus told us that we need to be a part of reaching the whole world. And so one of the ways that we do that is by going on mission trips and inviting many of you to be a part of that as we assist some of our partners around the world and help them out. So this week we have these two teams that are going to be helping expand the good news of Jesus in other parts of the world. Dale is leading a trip to Germany that leaves this Wednesday, and Elliot is leading a trip uh, to Canada that also leaves this Wednesday. Elliot is uh, sick today, so you can pray that he would feel well enough to lead that trip on Wednesday. And so I'm going to ask Dale first to share, and then Jeff is going to share on Dale's behalf just a little bit about what they're going to be doing this week so that you can pray for them, and then I'm going to lead us in prayer. So, Dale? Our team of five will be leaving on Wednesday, and we're working with one of our partners called Connection. Connection began in Germany serving on university campuses, uh, reaching the students there in Germany. We'll be helping out at a conference for the leaders and for the students first in Cologne, and then we'll return to Jena, Germany, to work on the campus uh, university there with the students. All right, and uh, we'll be leaving Wednesday and heading to the Toronto area of Canada. We'll be working with Dave Strobel at the Journey Church. There are a few community organizations that we're going to be working with to serve at a couple events in the community and also try to raise awareness for the Journey Church. Great. So I want you guys to be aware of that. We're going to pray for them. Um, These men and women have sacrificed um, their time, a lot of them vacation time and some money to go. And our main role this week as a church, those of us who are not going, is to pray for them. 
Uh, we have prayer cards for each of these teams, and they're on the table over there uh, to your left. And so I would encourage you, uh, after we sing our final song, maybe to go up and grab a prayer card. If you have a moment, just uh, say a word of encouragement to the team uh, before you head off today. But I want you to join me in prayer as we pray for these teams, and then we'll, uh, we'll continue on. Let's pray. Father, we do look all around us, and we see both the tremendous beauty and the tremendous horror around us. And we know that you are the author of beauty. You are the one that is good, and you have made all things good. And you have created us to not only enjoy this beauty, to take it in and be moved by it, but to know who you are and to relate to you and then to love each other. And God, I pray for both of these teams as they head out to different parts of the world, in Germany and Canada, that you would give them the opportunity to make connections with people in both locations. So often your truth now travels from life to life, mouth to mouth. And so we pray, God, that you would give them words and opportunities to speak your truth to people and to really love those on the trip. I pray that as they face the stresses of a different place and different time zones and different cultures, that you would help the team bond together in unity. You'd help them to love each other well. And God, I just pray for protection as they travel, uh, protection on their families if they leave some of their family members here behind. And God, we just pray that your, your truth would extend through both of these teams in this coming week. And we ask this now in your name, Jesus. Amen.